everybody. This is Pastor David, and this is Take a Knee. Thanks for joining me again here today. I, like so many, are really intrigued by the place that the Bible calls heaven. A large population of society does believe in an afterlife of some sort. And, and it's interesting that they have taken uh, polls and uh, testimonials of people that had near-death experiences. And I have here about a 14 or 15 different things that people experienced when they passed away and came back. So call them, we call them the near-death experience. And, and, and these were the things that they felt or saw in those experiences. First of all, the first one was a movie reel of their life that they would see like their life passing before their eyes. And it wasn't necessarily a dreaded thing, but it was just like they could see from childhood and on through. This was their experience. It wasn't the most experienced, but it was many. As a matter of fact, I'm going to start from the ones that are least experienced to the one that most people have experienced. Then a connection uh, to some faceless spirit. That's been said quite often that people felt like there was a uh, something spiritual, a guide that was there. They felt the presence of a guide. Next was an overwhelming feeling of calm, just feeling calm, that there was no terror, there was no fear, there was just a sense of calmness and, and peace. Next, traveling through a tunnel. We've probably heard that quite a bit. People going through a bright light, but then seeing this tunnel that you're going through. Then there was an experience of a stairway to heaven. We know that's in the Bible with Jacob's ladder, but that people would see this stairway to heaven and they were in, 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 uh, called to go up this stairway. And then another one was flying through the skies, a sense of flying and moving upward towards heaven. Another one was actually seeing heaven's gate and that this gate was absolutely intricate, the most beautiful gate and um, construction of a gate that anyone has ever experienced or seen. Just, and it was enormous. Another uh, experience was seeing lost loved ones. That, of course, would be pretty amazing. Seeing an old family pet walk up, crawl up, maybe jump up on you. Feeling unconditional love, this overwhelming sense of the love of God permeating a person, or maybe not the love of God, but just love in general, the presence of angels. Now we're getting to the ones that were most experienced, a feeling of unconditional love, the presence of angels. So actually seeing winged beings, um, then Animals roaming the landscape, seeing animals everywhere. It's not just people or angels, but animals. And then an unparalleled beauty as far as the eye can see. So an experience of, uh, you know, just seeing multiple colors and uh, just beauty as far as how we would describe it, even from an earthly sense. I've also read where people would have said that it was beyond anything that they could describe. Paul even says that in scripture, that it's something that he wasn't even, he felt, he did not feel whether he could communicate it or that he didn't have permission to communicate it. And finally, the biggest one is a, a feeling of returning home, a feeling of returning home. So there is a also a significant portion of people 
groups around the world who do not believe in a heaven or afterlife. And these people tend to believe that this is the only heaven here on her earth that we as human animals, quote unquote, will ever see. This kind of thought leads to what is called utopian thinking, utopian thinking. And I do know there are a few definitions for that, but think of it this way. What we're, we're thinking is a utopian thinking is the belief that a near-perfect world can be created here on earth through a certain social engineering process. So in other words, it can be had if people would just work hard enough to create the perfect world. There are those that believe that utopia or a quote-unquote heaven on earth can be made if we will cast off the certain restraints, that there are certain things that are holding us back from just us evolving into uh, a people on the earth that live in perfection and that things would just get better if we remove certain beliefs, certain, you know, uh, significant social constructs. One of, one of these beliefs in an afterlife, you know, is this whole idea that it, it, it can hinder. In other words, if people have a, a hope of an, an afterlife, then that is one of those things that might be holding us back from building it here. In their minds, this hinders the pursuit. So hope becomes somewhat of the enemy. Hope of eternal life is an enemy because in their mind, hope takes away the determination to change things here. So you're like, well, you know, in the as the old hymns would be, that, you know, when the time up yonder comes, you know, what a wonderful time that will be, you know, that we'll leave all of this imperfect behind to embrace the perfect. And, but if the perfect is coming, why waste your time trying to build it here? That's what these people are accused of. You know, they're like, well, you know, I'm not going to lift anything. I'm not going to do anything to change this world because um, I'm leaving <laughs> to go to a better place, heaven. Well, quite obviously, I'm talking about the Christian belief in heaven that has its moorings in faith of this afterlife place in the Bible. So that, Now, Jesus, when preaching, often talked about heaven and our eternal existence. He talked about a couple of ways we might spend that existence. Well, we'll come back to that. This desire, really, ultimately, for a utopian world here is so strong and this was evidenced recently in the movie called Avatar. Did you happen to see that? This affected audiences so strongly that some people refused to leave the theater or that they just wept uncontrollably because they wanted that Avatar world so badly. It was called Pandora. And they, it just created this utopian existence that really affected people strongly. I kid you not. It was a social experiment for sure. Only problem was that it was more environmental in its push than utopian because the Navi or the Navi or however it was pronounced, the Navi, were one with nature. And I mean really one. And they worshipped a mother goddess named Iwa. So bring on the animistic, pantheistic history of our planet and voila. You have a retro world with 10-foot-tall blue people who didn't want their land stolen from them. Okay, 
I think we can see the connection and we get the point. However, I wouldn't mind having, I don't know about you, maybe a 10-foot body to run around in, super strong and pervious to some of the environmental things that can hold us back, but that's just me. So what about heaven that makes us want it so badly, but are, are so unwilling to listen to Jesus and what he had to say? So Jesus was pretty straight up on his discussion on eternal life. In fact, his audience, he didn't really have to convince them that there was an eternal life. Of course, the Sadducees, we know, if you've done a little study on that, the Sadducees were uh, were very influenced by the, the Hellenistic thinking or influenced by the Greeks, and they had come to the conclusion that there really was no angels and that there really was no supernatural existence. Whether they believed in a heaven or not, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I do know that Paul was able to exploit that because the Pharisees did believe in angels, did believe in an afterlife and the whole nine yards. What was hinted toward and communicated slightly in the Old Testament, again, it was more of a hint of an afterlife, even though there were some experiences. I called it the grave. But Jesus was clearly not giving any credence to a utopian world. He was talking about the hereafter. He was talking about a world, a kingdom that we could not see. He said, I am from a kingdom that is not of this world. So he was really bringing up the idea of an afterlife very significantly. But he was not pushing a utopian world here. I need to make that that point very clear. In fact, he gives us more of the impression that this world will be destroyed as it is and replaced with another one, the new heaven and the new earth. You know, Daniel and and some other prophets uh, saw evidence of that. And those would be probably our biggest uh, proofs of, of an afterlife from the prophets. See, Jesus was not a utopian thinker, okay? Not in the way that we uh, we look at it or dis- discussed it or, or uh, defined it here today. He did not come to necessarily fix this world. He came to make sure that we would go to the next in the perfection that was waiting us there. If there was a utopia, we don't really use that word. We say heaven. That's the word that Jesus used. His followers wanted him to be, you know, a, a utopian leader, they wanted him to set up a kingdom that was here on this earth. And you've heard this many times. Jesus, you know, they were trying to make him a king. In fact, the crowd, when they heard about Jesus, they were ready to, you know, be his army and march on Rome and and uh, install him as the new king of kings and lord of lords here on the earth, the Messiah, and the way they saw that Messiah and how he was going to rule. Well, Jesus made it pretty clear, nope, that's not what I've come to do. You know, he came to build a kingdom and to open the door to a heaven that already existed and be able to, he he said, to go and prepare a place for us. No one really knows exactly what that means. He talks about mansions. I've heard people say, no, no, that was just a, a little funky change on the Greek. But but I, I'm definitely of the opinion that Jesus is definitely preparing for our coming. And not only uh, for those who are going before us in the Lord, obviously there's been millions of Christians who are already ent- already entering heaven and then those who will come. And so uh, 
in whatever heaven is now, and then it will give birth to an even greater uh, experience uh, or preparatory place that Jesus is working on now, whatever it be. But anyway, so we're talking about what Jesus taught. And in the Old Testament, it talked about the day of the Lord that the ancient prophets talked about and again was confirmed in detail when Jesus said this. If we look at uh, Matthew 25, 31 through 34, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is Jesus speaking, okay? When the Son of Man comes in his glory, speaking of himself, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father, and take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So this is very specific language on, on Jesus' part. He's saying, look, this is what's going to happen. You know, he is going to be set upon his throne. He will rule and reign. And the people, now notice it said the nations will be gathered. So we will be definitely defined by our uh, geopolitical association, the nations. So all of these nations around the world will be presented before God according to where we were born, what were our geopolitical positions. So that's interesting, isn't it? Ethnos means the peoples, different people groups, and we know that we have those that exist. And uh, so then he says there's going to be this separation of those who, as Jesus often said, those who listened to his words and followed him and those who didn't. And so there will be no in-between. There won't be any third group. There won't be any fourth group. There won't be any divisions of, of these two groups at all. They'll just be the sheep and the goats. will be those who trusted in Christ and those who did not. And uh, the emphasis is placed on those who did will receive some awesome things. Matthew chapter 7, much earlier in, in that gospel, Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is speaking very plainly here to say that there'll, there'll be a lot who a lot of people who will think they know God and will even call out to him and, and say, you know, uh, I spoke your name, I talked about you, I was aware of your presence. But he, of course, he's going to say, yeah, but what did you really believe? And what did you do? in that belief. So that's incredibly important when we think in terms of this afterlife that Jesus talked about. So I wanted to make that point clear here today. When we think of heaven, that there are those in this world that think that you can build heaven here on earth. And that's where I would say that Marxism and uh, communism and Stalinism and fascism and all the isms that uh, man tries to use to create a perfect world, you know, that there are things that are holding us back from experiencing true, wonderful, earthly existence. If we'll just take the pollution out of the sky, we'll be happy. If we just fix our oceans, then we'll be happier. 
if we have a lot less people. In fact, 10 billion is just too much. Maybe we need to only have 1 billion. And of course, what does that mean? And how are we going to do that? Um, it goes on and on as to ways that we try to create a heaven on earth. But I want to make that point clear here today is that the Bible does not teach that we can create a heaven on earth. Utopian thinking is wasted thinking. And in the sense of, and when I mean wasted, I mean the energies that we put into trying to create a heaven on earth is, is futile because we know that this earth is on a, uh, a timer. And Jesus said, look, it is all going to end. The day of the Lord is coming. He confirmed this. The ancients, the ancient prophets saw that day coming. And Jesus said, yes, it's coming. And he says, it will happen when I come again. He came the first time. He taught. He awakened the world. He communicated with 12 disciples who became apostles, who went throughout the world to tell everyone. And now we have this book with incredible detail that has lasted the test of time. It has been an absolute wonderful gift to mankind that continues to communicate, look, Jesus is the only way. And without Christ, you cannot have an eternal life. You will not ever have utopia without Christ. Now, isn't it interesting that most of the utopian thinking, those who are trying to build a heaven on earth, they have to get rid of religion. They think it's an opiate of the masses, that it is, it's hopium as a very popular term now, that it's just causing people to be lazy regarding their responsibilities here. And to get there, to remove God, to remove heaven, to remove Christ, leaves us in this purposeless, animalistic, moralless world. And when you take morality out of the world, then my friend, you cannot have a utopia. The Bible clearly teaches us that we are born to do evil and that every attempt on our part to build something without God will always end in disaster. See, it doesn't take anyone, well, let me just put it this way. A lot of people today, they do not know the history of utopian thinking. They don't understand what we have as mankind historically done to try to produce it. And we have done it all going all the way back to the Tower of Babel. We have done this. We've tried this over and over again. And it only produces chaos because everything that we do to be like God or to get God out of our thinking only causes us to live in a world where we're left to ourselves. See, the utopian thinking relies upon man being able to better himself without God. And yet we're taught in scripture that we are born with a sinful nature. And we have seen this play out, that those who are trying to create a world, a heaven here on earth, are only going to uh, hand over the keys to this utopian concept to very evil people who start off with a good concept, but 
the amount of blood they have to shed in order to get there makes them so corrupt, so evil, that they'll never be able to be leaders of a, a utopian world where goodness is sought? Well, see, goodness, you know, Jesus said no one is good in their heart. We have to be taught how to be good. And you don't get a goodness coming from killing or maiming or, you know, um, going through the population and separating out the ones that you don't think deserve to live. That I'm, I'm afraid that if we adopt that thinking, again, there, that's not steeped in goodness at all, at all. I like Hebrews chapter 9, 24 through 28, that says, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. So he didn't enter a, enter a copy. He went to heaven itself. Now he's talking about being that sacrifice. He he went straight into heaven to do what needed to be done with his the sacrifice of his life. And then it says, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. So in other words, he's not just doing this over. He, you know, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Okay, so he didn't go in multiple multiple times. He only went once. Verse 26, otherwise Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. That's amazing stuff right there, isn't it? And so what we're doing here is, is, is seeing Jesus and, and the writer of Hebrews tell us that this is what Jesus did. He came to fix our eternal problem. Now, now I will say this, that by fixing the eternal problem, we can also fix our immediate problem. <laughs> and that is a broken world. So let's finish up with some ideas that you can take away. Number one, my idea of heaven is based on what I read, and it is just what we can expect. And so, in other words, we don't know anything about utopia, anything about heaven, unless we read scripture. That is where we get the idea. We had this man, this man God, the son of God, come and give us a real picture. And the scripture goes on to tell us he's the only one who can tell us because he was there. That's where he came from. That's incredible, isn't it? And then secondly, I recommend a book called Heaven, just that's the title, Heaven by Randy Elkhorn. And he does a deep dive study on what the Bible says heaven is. So the Bible has a lot to say about heaven. If we will take the time, you know, to put it together in an exhaustive study, and Randy Elkhorn does, it is an excellent book. I promise you're not going to be disappointed. In fact, when you're finished reading that book, you're going to be jumping up and down. You're going to say, I am ready. Thirdly, to finish, you know, we all want a better life here. I do believe that we can have riches, 
We can have honor and we can have a long life here, but it doesn't come through Marxism or any other ism, but it comes through the power of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Many of our social ills are not caused by organized religion, as they say, or we are accused. They are caused by greed. They're caused by idolatry and envy and bitterness and comparison, all the things that Jesus said that could be fixed by asking him to come into our heart and to heal us of this, this, this wicked heart, this broken heart. So we can't have a good life without truth. We can't have a good life without morality and true love of how we treat and love one another and how we care for one another. You can't build a heaven on earth by mistreating one another. That's weird. That's, that, that is, in the end, it's ludicrous, in fact. And yet people gobble it up left and right. How did they get there, you may ask? Well, I'll tell you how they got there. They removed God and said, now we are left to ourselves to, to philosophically create a perfect place. Well, you know, there were some guys who spent a lot of time thinking about that, gave their whole lives, and are considered brilliant geniuses. But in the end, it was a waste. I often feel that utopian thinkers are truly deceived. I do. Why? Well, if you think that being violent and, again, hateful is going to create a utopian world, then you do not just, you know, uh, just know about evil. You don't really know how selfish people are. You're not in touch with humanity and really what men and women are capable of. I've had a chance to see that for 40 years, and I can tell you, I've heard some absolute, terrible, frightening, overwhelming things that seemingly good people would never do, but they did, absolutely did. And that shows you that we need, that, 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 that man can't come up with our own solution. I'm sorry, we just can't. Jesus didn't bring a utopian thought. He brought a solution to our evil hearts. Can we make a better world here? I believe we can, sure. Marxists feel that communism will be successful when the whole world is communist. I beg to differ. I believe that this world will be a much better place when most of the world becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. When we finally get to the point where we're seeing what the real solution is, loving one another and not comparing ourselves to one another. But in, in fact, building a world where it is possible that we can improve each of our lives through the changing of the heart. That's, my friend, a true utopian thinking. God bless you, and you have a wonderful, wonderful week. We'll see you next time.